Isaiah chapter 28 follows, I read this morning, verse 1 to 12. Isaiah 28, verses 1 to 12. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord hath a mighty one, a mighty and strong one, which has a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing shall cast down to the earth with the hand. Let me stop there just so you know what's going on because I don't have time to explain it. Verse 1 to 12, God is speaking to Israel. When he uses Ephraim, when you find this in the Old Testament, Ephraim is interchangeable with Israel. Ephraim was one of Joseph's sons. Ephraim means fruitful. Verse 2, we're not preaching on this today. Verse 2 is talking about Assyria. Assyria is described as a mighty and strong one. And when they would come to attack Israel, they would come down as a tempest of a hailstorm. Keep this in the back of your mind. The timeline in which this is being preached by Isaiah is 725 B.C. 725 B.C. Let's keep reading. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet. And the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower, and as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he that looketh upon it seeth, while it is yet in his hand, he eateth it up. In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people, and for a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment, and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no place, for, uh, no place clean. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For stammering lips and with another tongue shall he speak to this people. To whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing yet they would not hear. Did you know there's a difference between tired and being weary? There really is. We're weary of wearing face masks. We're weary of social distancing. We're weary of social unrest, rioting and protests. We're weary of unemployment. Business plans turned upside down. Worry of sickness, ailment, COVID-19. Worry of the idea, will I catch it at church? Will I get it at work? We're weary. And when you're weary, there's no rest. And when you're weary, you wake up. Your mind is racing. You're tired and weary. Brother Chapel and I were talking several years ago, and we just happened to mention that, you know, Sunday nights, we look forward to ending church on Sunday night on a high note, 
But we both found out that it's very difficult for us to sleep Sunday night. We're both kind of a partial sleep or don't sleep at all. So you really don't get rest and you're, you're just weary. You're just wired up. You're just wired from the whole day. I'm a little concerned about today because I'll be preaching four times. Today. I don't know how wired I'll be tonight, but, uh, you know, you'll be a little bit wired there. But you're weary. Somebody's been sick very long. They're weary. Jamin Chan is weary. He's battled for three years. Disappointment after disappointment. An ailment that is weighing him down. A friend of ours who has been to our church many times, she and her husband are great Christians. They've been to many of our services in the past. They belong to another independent fundamental Baptist church. Sent me a message yesterday. He said, preacher, pray for my mother. She told me the country her mother's in, 79 years of age. She said, preacher, would you pray for my mother? She just tested positive for COVID-19. She's wary. I'm thinking of a church, a family. They might be here today. Mother's been in the hospital for six weeks, intubated three times. That's weary. But the Bible says something, verse 12, would you notice it? To people that are weary, this is the rest. Wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Father, this morning, it's a blessing to see your church, your people, my friends at church today. Lord, I humble myself to you today. I don't deserve to be here. And as only you can, I pray that you'd come upon us as the chief shepherd and bishop of our soul. I pray that you lead us beside the green pastures, take us to the still waters, restore our souls. I pray that we'd see like Jeremiah, thy word was found, and I did eat them, and they were the joy and rejoicing in my heart. I pray this morning that you give strong exhortation and build us up in the word of your grace. I pray this morning for rest, for weary minds, for weary souls, for weary lives. God, meet with us today as only you can. Anyone here that's in this auditorium or watching by live stream that's not saved, I pray they trust Christ today and would find rest for their weary soul. Would you help me today? Lord, this is the second service. I pray for my thoughts and my heart to be in alignment with you. Sanctify us through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 1986, the city of Philadelphia experienced a, a crisis I don't think any city or people wants to go through. We went through one last year. PG&E shut down their power. They're talking about doing it again this, this, the fire season comes up. And in 1986, the city of Philadelphia had a crisis. The garbage men or the sanitation services went on strike. And it wasn't a strike that went one week. It was a strike that went one month. Now, you think of me for just a minute. That's a lot of garbage, amen? That is a lot of garbage that accumulates. And so the city council for Philadelphia thought, well, we better do something about this. And so they tried to make an arrangement. I don't even know why they thought about Ohio and why they thought about Georgia. But they reached out to Ohio and Georgia. They said, can we ship our garbage to you? And they said, no. And so, you know, days are going by. It's accumulating. Citizens are getting angry. Streets are filled with all this gunk. 
They hired some independent contractors to take all this garbage, and believe it or not, they incinerated and burned all the garbage into ashes and rubble. (coughs) And someone had this novel idea on the city council. They said, let's burn it into rubbish and ashes. And by that time, there was also a lot of toxins that built up, and so there was lead and arsenic that was seeping out of this. And they purchased this huge shipping container. Not a container, but just a ship. And 28 tons, imagine this, 28 tons of garbage that was burned down was dumped into this ship. They put it out to sea, skeleton crew. Hopefully they thought, we'll find a nation, a country that will take it. They went to 11 countries and all of them said, no, don't give us your garbage. That belongs to you. And uh, no matter how they tried, no one would take the garbage. Meanwhile, for over a year, the fumes from this garbage that's deteriorating is building up. There were toxic fumes. Lead and arsenic is seeping out. It was known as the most unwanted ship ever in history. And it just kind of revolved around and had garbage that it couldn't get rid of. Life has a way in our, to each of us where it dumps its garbage on all of us. You might be someone this morning, or you know somebody, you've been dumped on. You've been dumped on by disappointments. You've had garbage given to you that you didn't ask for. It's garbage. And just like the garbage on this ship called the Pelicano, that was his name, the Pelicano. Over a period of time, the fumes from this garbage starts to become toxic and affects your life. And garbage that gets dumped on our shoulders in our life becomes toxic and makes us weary. It burns us out. We become anxious. Our minds are racing. We find difficulty in just finding rest for our life. You can't relax. Nobody wants the garbage that's on your shoulders. This morning we see a promise from the book of Isaiah. It helps us to determine what to do with the garbage that's in our life. Isaiah 28 is one of the prophecies of Isaiah. The prophecy to the nations. You remember it shifted from the Gentile nations that were attacking and oppressing and were troublesome to Israel. And it's shifted now to Israel and in this chapter to Judah. Chapter 28 is a dual prophecy. A dual prophecy talks to us about things to come many years later that will not be fulfilled in our lifetime. Many years later. We see some things that are millennial. We see some things that are tribulation based. But a dual prophecy also speaks of something that will happen concurrent within our lifetime or shortly after we pass. In Isaiah 28, we find God's prophecy to Israel in verses 1 to 12, and God's prophecy to Judah, verses 14 to 21. There are prophecies to two sister nations. It's 725 B.C. 
Isaiah is God's prophet based in Jerusalem and Judah, but he's speaking to both of them. He's speaking to two groups of people that are weary with things in their life. I want you to notice very quickly this morning three things that the Lord speaks to us about that, is a, that, that will help us to understand how to find rest and comfort for our soul. Number one, would you notice with me the Lord's complaint? In this chapter, we find God making a complaint or God rebuking the nations of Israel and Judah. Notice verse 1 starts off with one word, the word woe. Now, there's two ways of looking at woe. Here's the word woe, W-O-H-W-H-O-A, woe, stop, okay? And then there's the woe, which we find here. The word woe here means, "Uh uh-oh, trouble's coming, Uh uh-oh, there's problems ahead, uh-oh, you're, you're, you have, you're, 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 there's something bad's going to happen to you. It's a warning, it's a foreboding doom of, of, of wits about something terrible that's going to happen. Chapters 28, 29, 30, all the way to 33, almost every one of those chapters begins with the word woe. I took a quick peek at 20, chapter 29 last night. I was reading it a little bit there a couple times just to kind of get my mind focused for next week's sermon on that. And the word woe is used twice in chapter 29. Woe is a warning. It's kind of like this is the final call. This is the final say to you. God has a complaint that he makes first to Israel and then to Judah. Notice beginning with Israel, God has a complaint about Israel's sin. Did you see that? Notice he has complaints about Israel's sins. He starts off by saying, woe to the crown of pride. He mentions this phrase, the crown of pride in verse 1 and the crown of pride in verse 3. Now, this is not the first time God has spoken to Israel about their pride. They flaunted their sin. They were an idol-worshiping nation. They, they, beginning with King Jeroboam, they never had a good king. Beginning with Jeroboam, they instituted what was known as golden calf worship. They established a golden calf up in the northern area of Dan and down in the southern area of Bethel. They chose those two places as centers of worship. The people went there to worship the golden calves. Not only that, they brought in heathen worship from all the surrounding nations. God talks about that a little bit more in Hosea and Amos there. And they just worshiped all these idols there. And so God is at this place where now he's, their, their pride is just now manifesting itself. Sometimes we can quietly show our pride. Sometimes we show our pride by, just may, by something we say or maybe a, a a statement we make. But in this case, God said their pride, they were wearing it like a crown. They were wearing it as if it was royalty. They were unashamed to demonstrate that they were arrogant, they were conceited, and they were proud. They were saying to God, we don't really care what the prophets say. We really don't care what you think, God. We really don't care about what you're going to do because you've said over and over again, you're going to send judgment. You've told us that over and over again. We just don't think it's going to happen, and we're just going to continue doing what we do. Pride is when we have a high opinion of ourselves, an overly inflated opinion about ourselves. We think we're bigger. We think we're better than everyone else. We look at pride in the sense that, and all of us have pride to some degree. I mean, there's a good pride. Those of you who have children, you should be proud of your children. You should be thankful for them. Many of you here today are graduates from high school and college, and my, my heart goes out for you, and I tip my hat to you because this is the most bizarre year in the history of the United States of having a graduation. You've graduated, and you don't 
get the privilege and opportunity of celebrating it by walking across the platform and getting a diploma and saying, someone telling you, well done. I mean, you don't get that. Basically, it's a, it's a Zoom meeting and someone just mailing your diploma. It's just, all the, it's just a very, very weird, bizarre feeling. And yet I remind you, if you are a graduate today, even though you're not recognized here, praise God you are recognized in heaven. Praise God that the Lord acknowledges and knows who you are. And we praise God for that. And though you might feel a little bit cheated this year, don't feel bad. God knows where you're at. We have that good proud. Parents are proud of their children. Spouses are proud of their spouses. Listen, we should be proud of our church. We should be thankful for a church that we come to worship God. We should be thankful in 21 years period of time of the opportunity of exercising faith on three building situations, on the acquisition of this building, of, of this land, and the property here, 2960. And then phase one, which was here, the Heritage Center. And phase two, which was the Berean Center. We should thank God for that. We should thank God that there's more faith to be exercised in the days ahead. We're proud of our church. We're proud of our people. We're proud of what God is doing. We're proud of the fact that in spite of others shifting, we've stayed straight as a church and we've grown as a church. We have that pride, but there's a bad pride. There's the pride in which we flaunt ourselves off. We're proud of our achievements. We boast about ourselves. We talk about our achievements. We talk about our accomplishments. We like to talk about ourselves. Pride is wanting to be the center of attention. Pride is when we want people to know who we are. Pride is when we just, we just let it all go out. By the way, the Bible tells us that pride runs in families. I was reading it, I was studying this a little bit, and the Bible says in Proverbs, about, it speaks about the house of the proud. I thought, that's kind of interesting. The entire families, it runs in our households. It kind of goes from dad to mom to the children. I mean, we're all filled with pride. I mean, when, we, when we're proud, we don't want to admit that we're wrong. And we're proud, we, we have a tendency to be somewhat self-righteous. And when we're proud, there's a tendency to be contentious. The, the Bible speaks much about that in Proverbs. It says that the prideful person is contentious. There's strife. It leads to strife all the time there. Uh, the Bible says that, that, uh, that, 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 you know, that in pride, it's a wrong attitude that we have. And we think about pride, God hates pride. The Bible says he hates the proud look and the arrogant way. The Bible tells us that God resisted the proud. The Bible says here, woe to the crown of pride. Israel was wearing its pride as a crown. They were not ashamed of it. They were saying, look at us, we're powerful. We're proud of who we are. We're proud of what we believe. We're proud of what we stand. And everything they believed and everything they stood for was wrong. God was pointing out their sin of pride. But that was not just a sin of pride. Notice something else. Pride was their crowning feature. What was it they were proud of? Well, idol worship was one of them. Their prosperity was one of them. But notice in verses 1 and 3, drunkenness was the other one. Woe to the crown of pride and to the drunkards of Ephraim. My maternal mother passed away when I was about four years of age. My father was... Overwhelmed with much grief. You know, you, they say you don't remember much as a kid, but I still remember that uh, the funeral for my mom, and I didn't understand it all, but my dad was holding me, and, and he kept getting up, up and down while the eulogy was being given, and, and he would just go to my mom's body, and he I just remember that very vividly in my mind as a four-year-old. And he asked my maternal grandmother and grandfather, I was very close to, he said, he asked them if I could stay with them during the week from Monday to Friday, and then weekends, I'd spend with my dad. And he'd come every night. It was amazing. He'd come every night. He had a, he had a uh, meat, meat business in, in Berkeley. They built the Berkeley BART station where his meat business used to be. And he'd come over after work, and he'd have dinner with us over at my grandparents' house. 
In my grandmother's store, I still remember vividly, it's no longer there, it was right there on 16th and Market Street, or 14th and Market Street, about two blocks from McClyman's High School in Oakland. And she and my grandfather were immigrants that came here in the 1920s, worked very hard. He was about 20, she was 16. They worked very hard and had a very good business. It was called the Cleveland Market, and they uh, had this market, and they had this big lot, and everyone that was family would park in this dirt lot behind him. There was a warehouse there, still can remember very vividly, and the high cyclone fence, I think it was about a 10-foot cyclone fence, and gate and so forth like that. But one of the things I remember about the store was right next to the store, right next to the lot, next to it was this bar. And I know you're not supposed to say the word hate. Brother Dave, I hated that bar. I was, a, I was a little kid. Violence came out of that bar. Vile people came out. I mean, I was a kid. I, I mean, I was, I was very nervous as a kid. I got scared very easily. These people come out of there, man, I just, man, I want nothing to do with it. And probably the worst thing about that is the people that came out, and men especially, that came out, they were so drunk, and they, all over the street. My grandmother, she was about 4 feet 10, 4 feet 11 inches tall. She was a very feisty lady, especially when she was younger. I mean, really feisty. Man, they'd come up, they'd vomit on the, on the sidewalk next to the store. She'd come running out with the knife, she'd say, don't you vomit out here in our store, and things like that, you know, to scare them away. And she'd clean it up. And I still vividly to this day, I still remember very, very vividly the, what, just the terribleness of people getting drunk. And I, and I said to myself, if that's what drinking's all about, and this was, I was an unsafe kid, I said, I don't want any part of that. And God has given a description of the sin of drunkenness of these people here. He speaks about the fact that they were drunk. Drunk means you're intoxicated. You know, the Jews, they did, you know, the, the, the manufacturing of, of, of wine or alcohol and beverage is kind of simple here. The Jews, you know, one of the big, the big businesses they had was the vineyards and the wine press and so forth. We, we know about that. And he talks about the fat valleys because that's a description of all of Israel because they, the land was covered with vineyards. And that was their big business. And, you know, when it was harvest time, they would, they would, have to, they would just cut down all the grapes. They would take it and process it. they take it to the wine press. But there would be so much grape juice that they, they really couldn't keep it without it spoiling. So the Jews did one of two things. They would take, well, actually one of three things. They would take what they wanted for that immediate moment to drink. And everything else that they processed, then secondly, that that they wanted to keep for the future, they would take it and they would set a fire and put it in a container and they'd boil it until it became very syrupy. When it became very syrupy, they let it cool down a little bit and then they took wineskins and they poured it inside the wineskins as a container and then they would dig a hole in the ground because if you dig deep and put it underneath the ground, it would serve as kind of a refrigeration process. It would be cool under the ground and they would keep it stored under the ground by their homes. And when they wanted something, uh, you know, sweet to drink, when wintertime came and before the, you know, before the, the, the harvest would grow again, the, the planting and so forth like that, they would dig, a, they would dig up the, 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 uh, the grape juice that they had that was syrupy inside the wineskin. They would dig it up and pour a little bit out, kind of like what we do with frozen juices there. They would pour it out, mix it with water, and that would be a very refreshing drink for them. Nothing was more refreshing than when it was freshly squeezed, but they wanted to keep it so they'd have the essence of something other than water, which tended to be, you know, a little bit polluted there. But the other thing they did with all this grape juice, some of them, they fermented it. They added yeast to it, and as you know, if you add yeast to it over time, it ferments, it changes the character of the grape juice, so it becomes alcoholic. And as it becomes alcohol-based and it changes, it has a way of when you drink it and you drink in excess amounts, it possesses you, it obsesses you, it controls you. And if you're not very careful, you can find yourself drinking and drinking and drinking, and you find yourself completely addicted to that drinking. 
God is saying here to the people of Israel, one of their sins was pride, but the crown of pride was the fact they reveled in the fact they were drunkards. One of the things we read about in the Bible, Old and New Testament, we read about people that are banqueting and all of these kind of things there, and they got drunk at these banquets, and God is calling out their sins there. Notice he speaks about the drunkards of Ephraim in verse 1 and the drunkards of Ephraim in verse 3. And then we go down to verse 7, and he says something even more descriptive. He says, but they have also erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. And then he said, the priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. Now, I have no preachers, and I preached on, on, on just the fact that God, God preaches against wine. He says against wine because he says in Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And we read more about that in Proverbs 23. I mean, God makes very clear that he doesn't want us to indulge in alcoholic beverages and fermented beverages, and he doesn't want us to indulge in something that would, uh, that would possess us in this nature. And God's calling out this nation of Israel, which had been like this for many, many years, and he says they're at the place where they were deceived by strong drink, and strong drink had overcome them, and he says they were out of the way, and it was so bad, not only were the mothers and fathers and even children getting drunk, he said that the priests and the prophets were getting drunk as well there too. When you're drunk, your vision is impaired. When you're drunk, your, your judgment is impaired. You're not yourself. You don't know what you're saying and what you're doing. And notice something else he says. He says they had gotten so drunken that their tables, banqueting tables, would be filled with the excess of vomit. They were, I mean, just can you imagine a terrible sight? They would be drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking, and then we all over the place. We were sick. To say this morning, God does not sanitize. And God does not authorize any form of drinking, social or occasional. And God is speaking to a nation that He loved. He said, I've got a complaint about your sins. Then God turns the picture there, and we go down to verse 14, and God's not just talking to Israel. Now he turns the other page to Judah, because Judah's just there like this. Okay, God, tell like it is. Tell Israel about their problem. And God not only calls out their sin, but God calls out the scorn of Judah. Because Judah also was being preached to, but Judah wasn't as bad as Israel. And they were kind of just, well, we're not as bad as them. And you've got to remember, Isaiah was from Judah, and Isaiah was the prophet from Judah to, out of Jerusalem, preaching to Israel and occasionally to Judah. And Judah, of course, had its sins. You've got to remember that at this time, Ahaz is the king. And Ahaz had led the country into terrible idolatry. And Ahaz had led the, the nation into terrible things there. And they weren't exempt from sin. But their problem was that it wasn't so much just the sin of pride and drunkenness. Their problem was the sin of scornfulness. Look what he says here in verse 14. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men, that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. The Lord is speaking to the leaders, especially there. He says, you have a scornful attitude. It's kind of like, huh. Yeah. It's having a contempt, a disdain, and he says later on, a mockery about God's word. You've heard God's word over and over again, but you scorn it. You show contempt for it. 
And it was so bad, if you notice verse 15, it was so bad about their scornfulness. This is what, this is the extreme that, that Judah went to. Look at verse 15. He says, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are, are, and with hell we are in agreement. You know what they were saying? They were saying here, like, okay, we've heard you are preaching. We've heard you tell us that judgment's coming from Babylon, but we have a covenant. We've made a covenant. I preached about covenants about a few weeks ago on one of our Wednesday nights here. And they said that we made a covenant. But it was a self-made covenant. It was a covenant with themselves. They basically said, we're not going to die, and nobody's going to hell, and nobody's going to suffer. None of that's going to happen. And they said, the reason why we've put our trust in lies and our trust in falsehoods. We believe what the false prophets are telling us. We believe what's being told to us by the news. Hey, listen, you've got to be very careful today. Don't trust everything CNN and the social media tells you today. You've got to be very careful that you're not trusting in lies and falsehoods and thinking that if the government just keeps on authorizing more spending and gives you more money, that's going to solve your problem. And you've got to be very careful that you don't fall into the, the delusion of thinking that if I join a protest, that's going to solve my problems. This week I was on a, I was on a uh, conference call that the public health department had for the so-called clergy, and I despise being on things like that because I'm not clergy, I'm a preacher, amen? The Bible doesn't use the word clergy. But I went on it anyway because I wanted to make sure I knew what was going on with the law and it would be obedience to that. And a man got on there that was a clergy, he was a so-called pastor, and he says, you know, we're dealing with pandemics, and he just kind of threw off all this stuff that was on his heart there. And I could tell this man he's weary with junk. And he's filled with a scornful contempt in his speech. And God is telling Israel here, listen, you, you, you're trusting in your lies. They said, we have made lies our refuge and under falsehood. And as we read later on, God talks about the, 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 the consequences of their trust. He says, listen, if you're going to trust in that, he says, I'm going to break that, that covenant. He said in verse 18, I'm going to break your covenant with death. And he says, I'm going to disannul it. And he says, your agreement with hell shall not stand. And he says, when the overflowing scourge, or that is later on Babylon will come in your place, they shall pass through you, then you shall be trodden down by it. He talks about the fact in verse 19, that from the time it goeth forth it shall take you for morning by morning shall it pass over by day and by night. God is saying listen I'm going to break this covenant that you have and I want you to understand your scorn is going to be dealt with. He says I've got to complain about where you're at and if you don't change your attitude he says I'm going to change you. And it got so bad God used a very interesting analogy in verse 19. He's in verse 20 he said for bed is shorter for the bed that uh, is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on him and the covering narrower than that he can wrap himself in. He used an analogy that even you and I I can identify with. I mean, can you imagine sleeping in a bed that's shorter than you? Do you know how uncomfortable that is? Or trying to cover yourself with a bank blanket that's smaller than you? You ever done that? You try to cover yourself, you take a nap on the couch, and, and you grab whatever's there, and you grab a little blanket or whatever to cover yourself, and you realize that your body temperature has dropped, that it's actually too small, and you're curling yourself up in And he's saying, you're not going to be comfortable with what's going to happen, what's coming down here. And he describes to them that when he comes on them, he says, my judgment will be just like it was in verse 21, as it was on Mount Perizim. He's talking about a conflict that Israel had in 2 Samuel 5 with the Philistines. And he says, I shall be wroth as I was in the valley of Gibeon. And he's talking about the conflict that Joshua had when Joshua conquered the five kings there in Gibeon. And he, and he, and he fought all night. And that was a great situation where Joshua prayed for God to hold the sun still for one, for one entire day. But God poured his wrath on those, on those kings. And, and God told them, if you remember that, God sent hailstones down. And the Bible says, more were killed by the hailstones than they were by the sword. God had a complaint. God is speaking to them. 
He said their glorious beauty and that they were reveling, reveling in their drunkenness and they were reveling in their crown of pride. He describes it in verse 1 and in verse 3, later, uh, verse, uh, verse 4, he says your glorious beauty is like a fading flower. You look like you're beautiful on the outside and you wear your crown of pride on the outside, but really you're like a fading flower. You ever seen a fading flower? It starts to shrivel up and the petals start to drop and it starts to wither and the head drops down. The Lord had a complaint. 725 B.C. is when the Lord spoke this. Listen to this. 722 B.C., three years later, God did what he said he was going to do. Israel was destroyed as a nation by Assyria. You know your Bible history. You know your Bible. You know that when that happened, the Israelites were assimilated with the Assyrians. They became known as the Samaritans. They became, and their children were half-breeds. God has a complaint. Our sins that we carry, our pride that we have, whatever we overindulge with, whatever that sin may be, our scornfulness we've had towards God's word, a bad spirit that we have. I'm going to tell you, over time, we don't realize it, but it wears heavy on us. We carry it on our shoulders. We carry it in our hearts. We carry it in our soul. It's reflected by the sharp statements we make and by the quick anger that we have. We get weary about things. We are weary about what goes on. We are weary about things that we don't like. We're weary about if we don't get our way. We get weary about these things. And God recognized these people were weary of their sin, but he had to tell them, listen, I'm going to tell you why you're weary because I've got to complain against your sins that you have. But I'm thankful where God hasn't complained. I'm thankful we see a God who's got compassion. Amen? Because God loves his people, notice in verse, verse 5, he talks about a residue of people. Thank God there's a remnant that, that God saw that were faithful. Thank God there's a remnant that didn't bow their knees to Baal. Thank God for 7,000 that haven't bowed their knees. Thank God for Peters and Johns who say we must obey God rather than men. Hey, listen to me, church. I know this is being live streamed. Listen to me. The numbers of COVID-19 and people testing positive, and albeit it may be a lot of the protesters who picked it up recently, but the number of people that are testing positive, not just here in California, across the nation, the numbers are up. In fact, the European Union, if you read your news, the European Union is looking at opening up to other nations. They're saying to the United States, no, we don't want you coming in. You want to go to Hawaii right now until August 1st? Hawaii's telling you, that's fine, you come, but you have to, you have, to have a self-imposed 14-day quarantine, and there's penalties and imprisonment if you don't do the self-imposed 14-day quarantine. I want to tell you right now that if they impose, they, they change things, they're talking about shutting things down this, this 4th of July. If they change things, I'm going to tell you just right now, I'm wary of having church closed. We're keeping church open. I said we're going to keep church open. We may have to reduce our size, maybe not have 100 people in a service. Maybe I'll reduce it down to 50 or 60, whatever there, have to preach a few more services. But we're not going to close church. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm wary of the fact we've gone eight weeks without church. I'm wary of the fact we've gone 100 plus days without church. Listen, we need church. We cannot be without church. And we see the Lord's compassion because he saw a residue of people that said they didn't bow their knee and they were faithful to him. And he looked at these people and he said, listen, I've got a promise for you. I've got some things I want to tell you. I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know today that no matter what your burdens are, and no matter how weary you may be, and no matter how discouraged you may be, I want to tell you today, God loves you. He gives us two promises, actually several, but two I want to look at this morning. Verse 5, he gives us the promise of a crown of glory. 
Now, it's interesting, God chose in verse 1 to point out a, a problem with Israel. He says, you're wearing a crown of pride. But he says, I've got good news for you. Even though I point out the crown of pride, I want to give you something better than that. I want to give you a crown of glory. Look at verse 1 with me again. He says, woe to the crown of pride. Look at verse 5. In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people. I started thinking about that crown of glory, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Because the crown of glory, you go and you study your Bible, the crown of glory is a, is a reward that God promises to faithful shepherds who feed their flock. He says, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall give unto you a crown of glory. And I started thinking, studying my Bible a little bit more, what is this crown of glory? And if you look at verse 6 very quickly, God says, in that day the Lord himself shall be for you a crown of glory. Hey, I've got good news to tell you. God's not going to give you more money, and God's not going to give you more jewelry, and God's not going to give you more houses, and God's not going to give you more land. The most precious thing we need more than anything else, we need more of Jesus, and we need more of God, and we need more of him. And guess what? When God told Moses, my glory will pass over, you know what he's saying? I'm going to give you the beauty of holiness. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to tell you today, the greatest thing you can leave church with today is having more of Jesus Christ on your life today. I'm going to give you my glory. I'm going to let my glory pass over you. I was reading over in Genesis the other day, and I was so excited because Abraham was so discouraged, and Abraham was so scared because he had defeated these five nations with 318 trained servants in his household. He told the king of Sodom, no, I don't want your stuff. I'm going to keep the people. I'm not going to give the people to you. And then he woke up the next day, and he thought, uh-oh. I'll let someone stay alive. They're going to come back and come after me. And he was worried to death. And God came to Abraham just like he comes to you and I when we're weary with fear, when we're weary with discouragement, we're weary with people who have disappointed we're weary in agreements that have not been kept, we're weary about other people's sins, which we shouldn't, but we are. And he came to Abraham and said, i got good news for you, Abraham. He says, I am thy shield. And listen to this, I am thy exceeding great reward. Listen, God's glory is his reward. Listen, thank God we're going to get crowns when we get to heaven for serving God and working. But more important than those crowns, more important than jewelry, more important than gold, more important than silver, more important than land, more important than bank accounts, more important than real estate, more important than all those things. Listen, the greatest thing we're going to get in heaven is we get Jesus. We get the Lord. He says, in that day, the Lord himself shall be for you a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. Listen, that's shouting ground to think about the fact that God himself will be on us. He's going to give us of himself. What is that crown of glory? The Bible tells us, humble yourselves, therefore, unto the mighty hand of God, and he will... Exalt you in due time. What is that exaltation in due time? That glory. That glory. To experience His holiness. To be transformed by that holiness. To be changed by the glory of God. When we're saturated by the Holy Spirit and have humbled ourselves to when we're nobody, God crowns with glory and beauty. But there's a second thing God gives real quickly. These people were believing lies. God told them in verse 15 what they were holding on to was shaky. God promised them something better. 
He said, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make it. You know what he's promising them? He, God promised himself, his glory in verse, verse, verse 5 or verse 6. And notice in verse 16, God is promising Jesus. He's, yet, he's telling him, listen, you've trusted lies. I'm going to give you something better. And he uses this example of the cornerstone. We know from our study of the Bible that back in those days, the most important element of construction, you had to start with the cornerstone. The cornerstone determined the foundation of the building. The cornerstone determined the integrity of the building. The cornerstone is what, what you measured to make sure the building was right. And listen, when you built it when you built it correctly and you had a sure uh, cornerstone as he speaks about here, that cornerstone held the building up so no matter what kind of storms and torments and things that came, that building would stand. He said here, I'm going to give you a cornerstone. That cornerstone is Jesus Christ. He says, I'm going to lay for you in Zion a foundation, a stone. He said a tried stone. Listen, Jesus is proven. You don't have to worry about anything about Jesus. He He's proven in what he does. He's proven as God. He's proven because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. He's proven as our Savior. He died on the cross for all of our sins. And we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He said he's a tried stone. He said he's a sure foundation. Listen, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking ground. When you place your faith on Jesus, you stand on him. It doesn't matter about the winds of adversity. And it doesn't matter about if, your storm, if the storm comes into your life. And it doesn't matter if a tempest of hailstone comes. He says those things can come, but you're standing on a sure foundation. And he says not only that, he's proven, he's tried, he's sure, but he's precious. Listen, there's nothing more precious than knowing that you've got Jesus as your Savior. There's nothing more precious than knowing that Jesus is in your life. There's nothing more precious than knowing that you're building your house on Jesus Christ. Thank God he's not just a cornerstone. He is a precious cornerstone for every believer. God loved his people. You're going to go through school and you're going to go through life and the media and everything else. They're going to tell you to trust in humanism and socialism. But I say to you this morning, God gives you a precious cornerstone. And he says, he that believeth. You see, their problem was like our problem. It's hard to believe. It's hard to put your complete, absolute faith in. But he that believeth on him shall not make haste. Peter later on says, shall not be confounded. What he's saying there, you're not going to be deceived by the lie. You're not going to run hastily to some lie that sounds very appealing. You know that Jesus Christ is an anchor for your soul. He's a solid rock upon which you stand. I'm just saying today, we see the Lord in spite of a complaint. The Lord gives compassion to his people. But we see one last thing as we close this morning. We see the Lord in his complaint. We see the Lord in his compassion. Would you notice the Lord in his comfort? Like the Pelicano, there was a people. They'd become wary of their problems. They became wary of their sins. They were restless. They were wary of carrying heavy burdens. They're wary of things that were pulling them down. They're wary from disappointments. They're weary to being in bondage to addictive behavior. They're tired and exhausted. And God is telling them in verse 12, three years before the Assyrians would come and attack Israel and Israel would be destroyed. He said, to whom he said, God speaks to us as he speaks to them. This, 
Not that. This is the rest. Who's the this? The crown of glory and the precious cornerstone. This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing. You know what he's saying? I've got rest for your soul. I'm going to give you something precious for your life. I'm going to give you rest that will help you to sleep. And I'm going to give you rest so your heart is not in turmoil. I'm going to give you rest so you don't have to pop some pills. I'm going to give you rest for your weary soul. I'm going to help you find rest. And you know where that rest is? That rest is found in God's Son, Jesus Christ. The rest is Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us the promise in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come unto me, all you that labor. We're working and working and working and toiling and toiling and toiling and going nowhere. Like the disciples at night, rowing away and not going anywhere. We're not going to come to him. Did you see that? On our own. We have to hear the call of the Lord, the beckon of God. Come unto me, all you the labor. And he says are heavy laden. When he says heavy laden, the weight is so heavy. And the burden is so great. The toxic fumes that are coming off are so bad. It's pressing you down and down. But look at verse 28. Would you notice this? And I... Not a substitute. Amen? Amen? I, not Prozac, and I'm not speaking down on Prozac. I, not the government, printing more money. Not, not anything this world can give you. I, he said, I who am perfect. I who am passionate. I who am the bread of life. I who am the water of life. I who am the true vine. I who is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. He says, I will give you rest. Jesus promises rest from him. Listen, you can be thankful today. The rest is not found in some substitution. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. We're looking for rest in the wrong places. You're trying to find the rest in a person. You're trying to find the rest in something else. Listen, the only kind of rest for a weary soul, a weary mind, and a weary life is finding that rest in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ. He gives us an unchangeable truth. I will give you rest if you'll just come. If you'll dump your junk on him, he'll take it and he'll give you the rest that you're looking for today. A preacher got up to preach from this passage and it was a very articulated message. And as he wove the message together, you could tell that the congregation as a whole, whether they had burdens or not, they just felt compelled in their heart that Jesus was the one that could take those burdens off their hearts. And those who were laboring and heavy laden, they felt that. And they wanted that yoke of Jesus, which was meek and lowly. But the preacher got into the so midst of his preaching, got so caught up with it, he kind of lost track of what he wanted to say. And this sometimes happens. One of the greatest fears of preaching is that sometimes you blank out. And when you blank out, you want to be careful that you don't say something that's off script that is not supposed to be said and, or something that... Well, it might even be unscriptural there. And so he just kind of blanked out there. And so he did one of those things sometimes preachers do. He says, he just kept on repeating, come unto me. Come unto me. Jesus said, come unto me. He looked on this side. He said, come unto me. He looked in the middle. He said, come unto me. He looked over here. Come unto me. He looked over here. Come unto me. Come unto me. Come unto me. And he said, come unto me. What about it? Come unto me. What about it? And he turned where Brother AJ and, and Chris here are sitting. And he looked at a little girl that was about eight years old. And he looked at her dead on. And he says, come unto me. What are you going to do? She stood up. No, did she stand up? She started walking him, and he thought, well, this, I didn't plan for this. He says, well, come unto me. What do you want? She says, I give all of myself to him. And what the Lord wants you to realize this morning, come to him, but give all yourself to him. He says, I'll give rest for the weary soul. 
take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For he said, I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest into your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Are you weary this morning? Bothered? Turmoil? Restless? Burdened? Discouraged? Depressed? Anxious? Worried? Insecure? You feel unloved? Or worse, unwanted? Rejected? Hopeless? Forgotten? Despised? And sometimes when we're weary, I don't know if I said this earlier, but sometimes when we're weary, one of the signs that has control on us is when we start to withdraw. And we're more cynical, more negative. We're very sharp with our words. And unknowingly, we don't even know we're critical. And deep down, you're hurting. But you've carried a wound for so long, you don't even know it. The Lord gives us comfort. Come to Him. He said, I, the bread of life, I, the Savior of your soul, I will give you rest. But you must believe. You must have faith. You must give it to God and let him take care of the rest. Would you give him your burdens? Would you find rest for your weary soul in a Savior who gives all of himself to us? He's a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty for those who have faith in him.